Let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we are gathered here today, though many of us are gone uh, for the break, I pray that we remember that your spirit is not more present with the number of people that show up on a Sunday. Your word is not less powerful because we can't hear as many voices singing in the background. Your, uh, your purposes, our consequential faithfulness, is not dependent solely on the number of seats we have filled today. And so, God, I pray that we would not let this be a distraction for us. I pray that uh, we would not be discouraged. I pray that we do not take this time that we have together lightly. That we would remember that you are God, that you are working, that you are powerful, that your spirit is here and present with us, that you are calling us to change, that you are calling us to make disciples, that you are calling us to bear fruit. So, God, I pray that for, for our hearts and for our minds, that uh, we would not have any hindrances or um, distractions that would cause us to be inattentive that we would not despise your word, that we would not be ignorant of it. I pray that we would not live in fear of the cost of discipleship. And I pray that you would remove the, the thorns, the weeds that try to embed themselves in our hearts, that you would remove those so that our sole focus, our one intent would be to exalt Christ, to know him and make him known. So, God, I pray that you would do that in this time as we gather and as we hear your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. There's a children's song that says, Be careful, little ears, what you hear. Oh, be careful, little ears, what you hear. For the Father up above is looking down in love. So be careful, little ears, what you hear. That song is written to children to encourage them to filter the messages that they hear from the Word. World, the, the messages that, that they hear from TV or from movies or from their friends or family that might not be in line with God's message for them. And we as Christians, those who are called to, to love Christ, to reflect Christ, to honor Christ, to, to uh, emulate Christ, to be like Christ, to be conformed to Christ's image, we too have that responsibility, like those children in that song, to... Be careful, little ears, what we hear, right? Uh, if we are going to, um, to be like Christ, we, we have to guard ourselves from the messages of the world, from the messages of Satan, and even from the messages of our own hearts. We have to be careful what we listen to so that we don't accept those messages to be true. But not only do we need to be careful about what we filter and limit, we, we need to be careful with these ungodly negative messages. We also need to be very proactive as far as what we put in, right? What we listen to, those things that we 
feed our ears, right? Be careful, little ears, what you hear does not just mean limit all the bad stuff, but it means maximize the good stuff, the stuff that's going to cause us to grow, the stuff that's going to cause us to be more like Christ, the stuff that our Father up above who's looking down in love is giving to us for our good, right? We need to, uh, our, our ears need a regular diet of hearing and receiving and, and uh, applying God's word. So, as a preacher, today the text that we're going to look at is all about that, right? This is, this is good stuff for a preacher because, you know, we stand up here and sometimes we wonder if anything's getting through. So this is one of those that like, hey, we're doing this for a reason. This is not an accident. God has designed this. In fact, this is one of Christ's few parables that's recorded in Mark. And the first one, he goes and he nails basically a parable all about what he's been doing, which is preaching and teaching God's word. So Jesus, the Son of God, came preaching and teaching, and he's instructing us that we need to continually listen to the preaching and teaching of God's word. So please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 1 through 20, and it's uh, page 839 in the Bibles there in the chairs. Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. Again, Jesus began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And his teaching, um, and, and in his teaching, he said to them, listen, a sower went, to, went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path. And the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on the rocky ground, where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns. And the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. Other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive. And may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world, and the deceitfulness of riches... And the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold 
and sixtyfold and one hundredfold. In this passage, we need to focus on the seed, the soil, and the sower. So let's first look at the seed. Now we know from verse 14 what the seed is. The seed is the Word of God, right? Done. Let's move on. No, not so fast. We need to remember the context here, okay? Do you remember um, what happened in chapter 1? How emphatically I pressed on you that what Jesus' ministry really involved. Jesus was about one thing, the preaching and teaching of the gospel. And do you remember his, his typical mission objective, what it is he did, his practice, his normal uh, activity? Every Sabbath, he entered the synagogue, and he would preach from the Old Testament of the things concerning himself. That's what he was doing. Preaching and teaching was essential. It was everything. Jesus did this repeatedly, and it resulted in such hostility that by the time you get to chapter 3, verse 6, the religious leaders of the day were ready to kill him. They were making plans on how they were going to destroy him. And as this opposition from these religious leaders continued to grow and build and increase, so did the size of the crowd. So that by the time you got to chapter 3, verses 7 through 12, Jesus was preaching not just to Jews, but also to this polyplethra, this vast multitude of both Jew and Gentile, and they were pressing in on him to such a degree that he actually had to get into a boat out on the sea lest they crush him. This was an overwhelming crowd. And that's the same thing that's happening here in chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside him on the um, beside the sea, on the land. But now, something different. This hostility has arisen, and it's so great that we find Jesus' ministry takes on some changes. Jesus' ministry here in chapter 4 is not the same as as what it was back in chapters 1 through 3. Now that the religious leaders were plotting against him, he no longer entered the synagogue on the Sabbath to preach from the Old Testament. He'll only do it one more time in chapter 6 when he goes home to Nazareth. And we'll see that that does not go well. Right? But his his method has changed. His, His location has changed. He's exclusively now teaching in homes or out in, in the open. Out in, out along the sea and things of that nature. So his, the location of his ministry has changed, but also his method has changed. Because he's no longer entering in those synagogues on the Sabbath and preaching from the Old Testament of the things concerning himself. He's now preaching in parables. Now parables are short narratives. And they have two parallel levels of meaning. There's the straightforward meaning, the meaning of the story itself. But parallel to that that story is a deeper meaning, an ultimate meaning that Jesus reveals only to those who are intimate with him, only those who are his disciples or those that are following after him that ask him specifically. We'll look at these meanings in a few moments, but, but we need to realize first that Jesus is now speaking in such a way that his ultimate message is given only to those who follow him. It's different than it was before. So I have to ask the question, why? Right? 
Why, why is Jesus doing this? Why is Jesus going from clearly articulating the gospel of God that they needed to repent and believe? Because that's the result. That's the consequence. That's what people needed to do. Why did Jesus stop entering the synagogue on the Sabbath and clearly preaching from the Old Testament of the things concerning himself? Things that they needed to hear. That he was indeed the Messiah. That he had the authority of God. Why is it if these religious leaders were corrupt, they were mistaken, they were abusing their positions of authority, they were misinterpreting the law, they were not worshiping in a way that was pleasing to God and they still needed rebuke, why wasn't Jesus continuing in that same uh, plan of rebuking and correcting them like he had been, right? I mean, why does Jesus' method change? And, and why if the crowd, this this polyplethora, this huge crowd is still in confusion about who Jesus is, and that crowd includes his own family. Why does he not bring clarification? Why does he not just speak plainly? Right? Why does he not just preach the gospel so that they might hear and believe in, in ways that are abundantly clear? It seems to to make sense. I mean, why does he veil his true message behind these parables? Well, Jesus tells us the answer. He gives his purpose in verses 10 through 13. He said, And when he was alone, those around him uh, with the twelve asked him about the parables. So we know that it's larger than just the twelve that were around him. They were the ones that asked the question. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? Jesus said to the twelve and to those who were with him, I, I give the parables to those who are outside. But to you all, I give the secret of the kingdom of God so that for the purpose that they may perceive, they may see, but not perceive. They may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they turn and be forgiven. I mean, look at that. That might be shocking. I mean, that's what's he doing here? Does that not stun you? Does that not surprise you? Jesus. I thought your message was to come and preach the gospel of God so that people would repent and believe, and now you're hiding it behind parables so that they won't turn and believe? That makes no sense to me. Jesus would speak to those who do not follow him so they can, in one sense, see and hear, but not in a way that would save them, not in a way that would lead them to repentance and faith. And this seems backwards to us, but... Jesus has a number of reasons for speaking in parables. First, in his speaking in parables, it prevents his enemies from trying that, that are trying to destroy him from taking action against him. Remember, when, when he was going into the synagogues on the Sabbath, preaching from the Old Testament, he was entering into their turf on their time, preaching their business against them. And they hated it. And so they were ready to kill him. But now that he's preaching in parables, and he's, he's outside, and he's preaching in these parables, they can't take action against him. They can't do anything about it. Another reason 
is that Jesus does this to fulfill Old Testament prophecy. Jeremiah and Ezekiel both speak of Israel as having hardened their hearts against God so much that they are as those who are blind and deaf. Right? This, this is a common um, imagery that's used to describe the hard-hearted Israelites. But even more so, Jesus is quoting from God's word to the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9, where God promised Isaiah, he's like, I'm going to send you out to preach. I'm going to send you out to prophesy. I'm going to send you out to proclaim my name. But guess what? No one's going to listen. No one's going to hear. What you're going to do, because of their hard-heartedness, it's just going to result in further judgment for them, a harsher judgment, more condemnation for them, because they will refuse to hear and heed your message. So Jesus is quoting this. And here's the thing. This goes beyond it. This is actually greater fulfillment because though this is true in the prophet Isaiah's day, the greater fulfillment is not just that they would deny listening to God's word as it's spoken through his prophets, but they're denying the very word that God himself speaks through his son, Jesus Christ. Right? They've refused to listen to him. Third, Jesus speaking in parables brings curses upon the hard-hearted. It's closely aligned to the, the second one, I know, but we have to remember that most of those who have heard Jesus have already determined in their minds who He is. They've come to a conclusion, a decision about Jesus, what they're going to believe about Him. And when their decision is inconsistent with who he reveals himself to be, the result is that they're cursed. Remember before, I said that that the Pharisees had come down with an official edict as to who Jesus was, and they said that he was Satan, said that he was Beelzebub. They had made an official statement on behalf of Second Temple Judaism. This is who Jesus is. And you see this perpetuated over and over and over again. But... But the crowd's not off the hook either. Because to most of the crowd, Jesus was just a spectacle. He was there to entertain. He was there to to be used as a means of giving them what they want so that they could be healed and they could they could do all this stuff, but they didn't want Jesus. They didn't love Jesus. They didn't seek Jesus. Their their hearts were hard against Jesus. They hated Jesus. So in Jesus preaching in parables, it brings further condemnation upon those who have already hardened their hearts against him. And fourth, we have to keep in mind that Jesus is preaching in parables in order to fulfill God's sovereign purposes. Friends, you do realize that that God has not determined that all people be saved. Right? God is not a universalist. Rob Bell is wrong. I mean, it's just not that way. God's perfect plan is that His true glory would be revealed in salvation that comes through judgment. Salvation that comes through judgment. That's the only way that we can truly understand God's glory is if we see salvation through judgment. I mean, think about it. Apart from God's judgment, we can't truly understand God's grace. If there's no judgment, then there's no grace. There's no mercy, right? There's ultimately no love. We can't, we can't understand God's justice 
if he doesn't judge. We can't understand his holiness if God doesn't judge. We can't understand his righteousness or his wrath. And without judgment, we truly can't understand his love because he says that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. That's not loving if that threat of wrath against sin is not real. Do you realize that? If God's not really going to condemn those who sin against him, then it's not really loving one way or another to forgive. Without wrath, without judgment, those, if those things aren't true, then, then there's no love at all. And God, if he simply saved everybody, he would be a lesser God. In fact, he couldn't be God at all. Because for God to just say, you know what, everybody's in, it's all good, he would have to deny himself. He would have to deny his holiness. He would have to deny his righteousness, that he's the perfect standard of what is right and that he always does what is right. He wouldn't be doing what is right. He would have to deny his justice. He's not just because he just, he didn't treat people as their sin deserved. He forgave it. He forgot it. Whatever. It's not true. He's not being true to himself. His patience, his kindness, all of that is removed. And here's the other thing. We would still be blind to our true state. I mean, think about it. If, if the threat of judgment is not there, then, then how would we really recognize our rebellion against God? How would we really recognize that, that we have longingly and happily and willfully placed ourselves under God's just and holy wrath? I mean, think about that. That we have lived as his enemies That's of no consequence. It doesn't matter because God's just going to forgive everybody. Judgment is essential for that, for us to recognize both who God is and who we are in light of Him. You see, we need judgment to understand salvation. We need judgment to understand God's grace. God's purpose in creation is so that we might know God in all His attributes and to enjoy Him for who He is. Right? His glory. And we can't do that apart from judgment. So Jesus speaks in parables so that these hard-hearted people will stay blind and deaf, so that they will continue in their unbelief, in their rejection of God. So that's the purpose behind these parables. But Jesus does say this to the crowd in verse 9. He says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is a call. A call to respond. This phrase is echoed repeatedly throughout Scripture. He's in effect saying that those who have ears to hear these things, not only should they listen, but they will listen. Because who gives them ears to hear? God does. They will listen. This is, a, this is a call out there saying, hey, listen, you who God has given ears to hear, you respond. You come. Jesus is calling those who have ears out of the crowd to follow him. Those who have ears are the ones who hear and know the will of God and do it. Those who have ears, like the disciples, are given the secret of the kingdom of God. Now, this is not 
mystical. This is not some special knowledge. This is not Gnosticism that they're putting forward here. I mean, to know the secrets of the kingdom of God is just basically to know the gospel of Jesus. I mean, Jesus preached the kingdom of God is at hand and that we need to repent and believe in the gospel. And the kingdom is at hand, the kingdom is near, because the king is here. Jesus is the king. So to have the secret of the kingdom of God is to have Jesus, to know who he is, to be with him, to follow him, to ask him those questions, to seek him out. And that's why he says to those who asked, those who were alone with him, not just the twelve, but the others who were around him, that asked him the question, he said, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. To you, I'm revealing the answer to these parables, what they really mean, what they really intend. And the reason why you have them is because you seek me. You seek Christ. They understand the parables because he teaches them the true meaning. Those who have ears are the ones who have Christ. Those that understand the secret of the kingdom of God are those who have the king, who are with the king, who submit to the king. So Jesus is saying that those who have, who want to know the true meaning of the parables, those who want to understand the secrets of the kingdom of God, are those that have ears to hear, are the ones who seek out Jesus. The ones to whom God has given eyes to see who Jesus really is, that he is the Son of God. All that Jesus said and all that Jesus did was meant to point us to who he really was who he really is. Right? It's not just to gain stuff for ourselves, but to open our eyes to see this is the Son of God. This is the King. I want to be with him. I want to follow him. I want to seek after him. Those who have been given ears to hear are those who are beginning to understand what this truly means. God's grace has opened their eyes to see that Jesus really is the Holy One of God. So Jesus calls each of us to hear the Word, to listen to Him, to open our eyes and our hearts to who He really is and to seek true understanding through Him. But it only happens through Him. So in going back to that original question, right? What's the seed? Well, the seed is the Word of God. And Jesus, in speaking in parables, um, and this includes you know, Jesus speaking in parables, and the result of that, two things will happen. There are two ultimate effects of God's Word, which includes these parables. Either it will cause you to grow because you are seeking Jesus and conformed to Jesus, or it will judge you. That's the effect of the Word. It's a two-edged sword, right? According to Hebrews 4. Those who are earnestly listening to Jesus want to understand, so they sought Him out. They followed Him. They were with Him, and they were changed by Him. These people who are around Jesus all the time were affected by everything that Jesus said and did. They were changed because they were seeking Jesus. Those who heard the parables but didn't seek that understanding, they were happy to say, oh, that was a nice story about seeds being thrown on the ground. I'm happy with that, Jesus. Well, further judgment was brought upon them because they didn't seek out the true meaning. God has designed His Word that it will have an effect either to change you or to judge you. There's no in-between. 
There's no gray area with the Word of God. Right? You will either have its effect one way or the other. And that's the result of it. We can't claim ignorance. Right? We can't just say, it's okay if it goes in one ear and out the other. We need to seek to understand God's Word and be changed by it, or we will be judged by it. Those that hunger and thirst for God's Word will grow. They will be changed. But for those who the Word falls on their deaf ears, they will be judged. And that's just the way of it. And so for a word of application, we need to be careful how we listen to the Word of God. We have got to be diligent. We have got to be careful. We have got to open our ears. I mean, is the Word falling on deaf ears? Is it going in one ear and out the other? Are, are you being changed by the preaching and teaching of God's Word? He says, those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Are you growing in your hunger for truth? Are you growing in your desire for God's Word? Are you seeking understanding? Are you hiding God's Word in your heart? God's Word will have two effects in your life, either to change you or to judge you. And that's the way that it was intended to be. Now that we've got the seed, let's take a look at the soil. Let's pick back up in verse 13. Jesus said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? Well, he's asking a rhetorical question. They're going to understand because he's going to tell them. He says, The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear it, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately they receive it with joy. But, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a little while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are, sown among, are ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and desires of other, for other things enter in and choke the word, and it, it proves unfruitful. But those that are sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. We see that the sower is sowing generously on all four types of soil. Right? He's scattering out there all four types. The first type of soil is the path. Now paths are hard trodden, right? People walk on them, they travel down them, and so they've been tamped and beaten down. And so it takes time for the seed to even penetrate. And then there's, there's also this danger of travelers passing by and, and stepping on the seed and, and it being removed. But Jesus says that the big danger, the ultimate danger, are the birds. Because the path is a wide open area. The seed falls down there, the birds see it, they come in and they take away the seed. But that seed, that, that, the, those birds, he said, are Satan. The Satan is the one who ultimately tries to take away the word. He immediately wants to swoop down and, and do anything he can to prevent the word from sinking deep into our lives, to it really changing us and affecting us and transforming us. And so he'll do anything in his power to take it away as quickly as he can. That's his goal. 
we often try to personify this as to how Satan goes about this. Like he, he somehow swoops down and grabs the word out of midair and kind of hauls off with it. Or, or we think about demon possession or we think that he somehow has the power to like stop sound waves from hitting our eardrums or something, right? Uh, but that's not at all the way it works. I mean, Scripture talks about three main ways that Satan does this, how Satan takes away the word. The first, it's inattentiveness, inattention, ill will, and ignorance. Satan works hard at keeping us from, from paying serious attention to the word. And so he attempts us, he, he attempts to distract us, to get us looking around or thinking about other things. We're, we're going over our to-do list for the week. We're thinking about, you know, what we're going to do after this. We're, we're just, you know, hoping that Chet sits down and shuts up here pretty soon or, you know, whatever it might be. Or, you know, we're, we're sort of mourning the fact that we are the, the poor few that didn't get to go on spring break or whatever it might be, you know. So we're lamenting that instead of, of really paying attention to the word. And Satan wins when he makes the word ineffectual in your life. If this word that you hear, this word that you study, this word that is proclaimed does not have a bearing on your soul, it does not change you, then Satan wins. And so he'll do what he can just to distract you, to detour you, to to just think about other things or to do other things or kind of nod off here because it's a little warmer, you're a little sleepy or whatever it might be. And we've got to fight against that. If it goes in one ear and out the other, or if you read it without thought or discernment or application, then Satan wins. In addition to inattention, Satan also uses ill will. You hear the word, you understand it, but you despise it. You don't like what it says. I don't want to. I don't want to submit to that. I don't. I don't want to do that. I mean, we just looked at an example that people really struggle with. Jesus preaches in parables so that people can see but not perceive. They can hear but not understand lest they turn and be judged. We don't like that. I don't like that message. I don't want to believe that. I don't want to hear that. I hate that. That's not the God I worship. You see what happens there. We let our emotions dictate our interpretation, our understanding, our application of God's word. I'll take what I want. I'll leave what I don't like because I don't like it. I don't want it. I can't have it. If it's a hard truth that you don't want to hear, that that doesn't change the fact that you must confess your sin and submit to Christ. You know? Just because you don't want to change your lifestyle, if the word conflicts with your lifestyle... We have the obligation as followers of Christ to change what we're doing, right? That's ultimately the goal, and we don't like that, so we'll flat out deny Jesus' message, and and Satan causes us to have that kind of aversion to God's Word. The third way that Satan takes away the Word is through ignorance. Satan will blind their eyes. He will keep us from grasping the truth of what is said. We'll kind of hear it, but it won't really register. Or he'll tempt us to think that truth or doctrine or theology don't really matter. They really aren't that significant. Only a personal relationship with Jesus matters. Which in one sense is true, but you have to be careful there. Because who is that personal relationship defined by? By you or by Jesus? 
Yeah, we we dealt with a situation just in PCF on Wednesday. Uh, a girl came in there for the first time, was hanging out, you know, and we're pre- we're we're going through Ephesians chapter four, and it's all about the need to be a part of the church, Parkland Christian Fellowship, and um, and it was all about the need to be unified in the body together. And she just blew up. She just started closing up her seven, said, "You know what? I have a personal relationship with Jesus. I do all this stuff, and blah 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 blah," and just headed out of there. She hated God's word. She was ignorant of what it truly meant. She, she was unwilling to submit herself to it. She didn't really see how things like the church really mattered because though she had a personal relationship with Jesus, it wasn't a personal relationship that was defined by Jesus, but by herself. She was the authority, and Jesus was her lapdog. So you can be around the truth. You can be around the truth a lot, and you can still be ignorant of it if you don't have the meaning and the application right, if you're not really uh, being changed by it. So that's how Satan takes away the word. The second type of soil is the rocky ground. Here's, in, in this situation, there's just enough soil for the word to begin to spring up, but not enough to really sustain its growth. Jesus says that these are the ones who hear the word and they receive it immediately and with joy. They are excited about it. Yes, I want that. I want that for myself. I'm going to take that. I need that. Absolutely. But then things get hard. Then things get difficult. Then the sun beats down and tribulation and persecution and hardship comes in and people realize, you know what? I I, I didn't really count the cost of discipleship. I didn't really... I didn't really think about what this would mean for my life. Yes, I want all the promises of Jesus being my Savior, but no, I don't want all those requirements of Jesus being my Lord and what what that's going to do for me. Because the world does not like the Gospel. The world does not like the Word. Remember, they, they abandoned it because this persecution, this tribulation occurred because of the Word. On account of the Word is what he said. People hate this message. And they're going to despise you because of it. It's going to happen eventually. In fact, Paul tells Timothy, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So in one small way or another, you'll see it. Whether it be you're doing a personal belief survey on campus and and, uh, some middle-aged professor starts berating you because you found out that you're from a church, which happened again this week with the mission team, um, it was a good experience for her to have, but she had to deal with the fact like, man, am, am I this rocky ground? Right? The reality is people hate the gospel, and, and, and if we're going to be like our Savior, which we're called to, our Savior suffered for his faith, and so it's, you know, we're called to do the same thing. Are we going to stick when times get hard, or are we going to bolt? The third soil is a bit more fertile but it just happens to be plagued with thorns. According to verse 18 and 19, these thorns are the cares of the world. They're the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things. These worldly desires choke out the word so that it is unfruitful. The very purpose of the word is denied because it's choked out by all these desires. Desires for wealth, desires for success, or pleasure, or leisure, or comfort, or security, or entertainment, or approval of men, or power, or even worry. 
It cannot be a negative one. All of these, all of these desires choke out the word and make it unfruitful, ineffective. And if we're not careful to pull those weeds, to pull those thorns like we would in a garden, that garden is not going to grow. It won't. We have to remove those things from our heart. And this is a constant process because we find those idols, those desires creeping up all the time. Trying to choke out the word and make it ineffective. Because we, we become about whatever that little thing is. And we, we want that more than anything else. That becomes ultimate. Whether it be a relationship or our future goals. I mean, you name it. We do it all the time. Satan is happy to keep us fat and happy on the things of this world so that our lives will not be affected by the world, by the word. <clears throat> the fourth soil is the good soil. Jesus says in verse 20, but those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. Those that hear the word, accept the word, and bear fruit as a result of the word, those people are considered the good soil. The word is not taken away from them by Satan's devices of inattention or ill will or ignorance. They're willing to count the cost of discipleship, even if that means suffering and hardship and pain. And they're willing to suffer as a good soldier for Christ. They strive to free themselves from the thorns of this world so that the seed of God, the word of God, will do what it is supposed to do, which is to bear fruit. We are supposed to persistently hear, accept, and bear fruit. This is a continual. It's not just having heard once upon a time, but Jesus says that we need to continually hear the word of God. Over and over and over again, we need to hear if we are going to bear fruit, which is the very purpose of the good soil. He stresses that we, that as they continually hear the word, not once, but regularly, repeatedly, and frequently, the result is this glorious yield for God. 30, 60, 100 fold. And this happens not because they heard it once, or they heard it sporadically, or they heard it inattentively, or they heard it with ill will or with ignorance or when it was convenient for them, but as they saturate themselves in God's word. That is when they bear fruit. That's when they bear much fruit. So if we are to bear fruit, if we are to be that good soil, then we have an obligation to prepare our hearts. We have to cultivate that soil. We have to make sure that we're not the path, that we're not the rocky ground, that we're not choked out by the thorns of this world, but that we are a good soil. We have to fight against distractions. We must submit our averse feelings to the truth of God's Word. We need, must labor to study and to understand. We, we, we pray for God's grace to stand in the face of persecution and the strength to remove those worldly desires from our hearts. And we must not stop at just hearing. We must not quit at simply hearing and intellectually accepting. It's not enough there. The Word of God must change us so that we bear fruit for God. But that is our purpose. That's why we've been given the Word. So I need to ask, but you need to ask yourself, what kind of soil am I? Really, what kind of soil am I? 
Am I distracted? Do I despise things that I read in the Word? Do I even understand what it means? Am I afraid to count the cost to follow Jesus? Am I really willing to lay down everything that this world has to offer in order to follow Jesus? Am I really hearing? Am I really seeking Christ? Am I loving the Word? Do I, do I, do I, or do I love the world? Do I long to hear God's Word? Am I bearing fruit? We've got to ask these questions, and how we answer these questions will give us an indication of what type of soil we really are. But we need to prepare our hearts to receive God's Word. It will give us an indication of whether or not we are truly a disciple of Christ or with, whether we're just like the crowd, that we're on the outside looking in. So we've identified the seed and the soil. All that remains is the sower. Though it's not made explicit here, the sower in the parable is Jesus. Jesus is sowing the seed. He's doing it. He continues to do it. Jesus is the one sowing the seed. And you notice that, that he does it in the parable in the same way that he does it in reality, in his life. That Jesus was sowing impartially on all the soil. On those who were like the path, on those who were like the rocky ground, on those who were saturated with thorns, and also on the good soil. Jesus sowed the word impartially, even though he knew that less than three quarters, or more than three quarters, would deny the word. That they wouldn't bear fruit. He knew that. But yet he still did it. He preached on all types of soil. It didn't matter whether they were... inattentive, ill-willed, or ignorant, or fearful, or in love with the things of this world. And we've seen that already in the crowd and in the Pharisees, even in Jesus' own disciples who haven't yet gotten it. We've seen it among Jesus' family. So we see Jesus sowing and preaching without partiality, even though few will hear Him and accept Him and bear fruit for Him. Few will be saved. Those that have ears but do not hear will be judged more harshly because they did not hear. And those that do have ears to hear are those who have been given the secrets of the kingdom of God so that they will follow Jesus and they will be changed. They will bear fruit for Jesus. They will produce a great crop. That's the result of the word. That's the the intended effect it is meant to have on the lives of all who follow Christ, all who profess to follow Christ. But how do they do that? How do they bear fruit, right? How do they produce this crop? Well, they do it by becoming like the sower. By doing what the sower did. They become sowers themselves. We have to remember that Jesus is teaching his disciples. He's giving them the secrets of the kingdom of God so that they would go out and tell others. That's his purpose. He's teaching them who he is and why he came so that they would know what it means to follow him what it means to to invest themselves in. But this passage not only applies to those 12 or to that number that was following him there in that day, it applies to all of us. We're all called to be sowers. We're all called to be like Christ, to do what the sower does. And that means to sow without partiality. The reality is we're to proclaim. It's not about finding those who are truly good soil and then sharing the gospel with them. It's about sowing without partiality, knowing that it's going to fall on bad soil. People are going to hate it. 
People are going to despise it. People are going to spit in our faces. People are going to just, out of ignorance, just kind of continue on with whatever they've been doing. People are going to continue to love the world. People are going to continue to to be fearful and not want to count the cost of following Christ. All those people are going to be present as we sow the word, but we sow it impartially. We send it to all. We don't know who's, who's good soil and bad soil, right? Only God knows that. And so we sow bountifully so that we might reap bountifully. Not in terms of drastic numbers, but in terms of deep faithfulness, abiding faithfulness, whatever that looks like. The people are changed by the word. That's something to rejoice in. That is glorious. So it... Praise God if he gives us tremendous growth numerically. Praise God if he gives us tremendous growth in depth. Because that's also good. Hopefully we'll have both. Right? You can't have the first without the second. So we don't need to be discouraged when, when we share with people and they don't accept Christ, when they don't believe. We don't, we don't need to be disappointed and think that we did something wrong. Because it's not up to us. If they're going to hear, it's because God has given them ears. And here's the thing. If people were unwilling to listen to Jesus, the Son of God, as he preached, as he taught clearly with great authority, as he gave validity to the truth of his claims with all these miracles, all these wonders and all this stuff, stuff that you and I can't do. And this is Jesus. You're not Jesus. If they denied him, they'll deny us. They'll reject the message. We shouldn't be surprised by that. But God is calling us to, to bear fruit. That's what he's calling us to do. We need to listen carefully and to prepare our soil so that God will change us so that we would go out and we would bear fruit for him. And by his grace, it would be a great crop. So I pray that we would do that together. That we would be changed together. That we would prepare our soil together, that we would listen intently and carefully to God's word together and that we would go out and bear fruit for God together. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, I pray that your word would have its effect in our lives. God, I pray that we wouldn't be distracted or inattentive to it. Pray that it would not enter in one ear and out the other. God, I pray that we wouldn't despise it, that we wouldn't hate it, that we wouldn't stand in opposition to it, but that we would submit to it. God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a longing, a deep desire to understand your word. God, help us to see when we're being fearful, when we're afraid to follow Christ, to count the cost of discipleship. Father, I pray that you open our eyes to the ways that we're loving the things of this world and not loving Christ. And God, I pray that our deepest desire would be to bear fruit. That uh, our lives would be so changed that we couldn't help but proclaim the gospel, to, to share the gospel, to live out the gospel, to commend the gospel. And God, I pray that your word would be held in high regard 
in our hearts and our minds. Because through it, we know you. Through it, we know your Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.